that's it. I'm done. Whew. Oh, here come the meat sweats. <laughs> Yeah, that's Joey from Friends. He could definitely put down some meat. It was a great show. And in all disclosure, yes, I'm very meat-friendly. I love a great steak. But more and more people are saying no to inflammatory foods, which includes red meat. Whether it's for health reasons, climate change, or animal welfare, vegan statistics show that the plant-based diet population continues to spike. And businesses are taking notice as well. The number of vegans in the U.S. has changed over time, but how much it's changed is up for debate because there's a lot of different ways to track that, and there are just different ways at which people classify their vegan diet. Nonetheless, in the U.S., most surveys generally put the count anywhere from 2 to 6% of the entire U.S. population. But that's a change back from 2014, when only about 1% of the American population label themselves as vegetarian or strict vegetarian, a.k.a. vegan. So in this podcast, I thought we would tackle the vegan pregnant patient. I mean, are they at risk for some perinatal outcomes? And what does the data show? And are they behind on certain kinds of micronutrients? So let's tackle the vegan OB patient in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, podcast family, we're going to cover a lot of data here, including something that was recently released just from January 2023, uh, showing the importance of nutrition and dietary intake during pregnancy. Because that old childhood adage of you are what you eat, I mean, I hate to say it, it really is true. And let me just be completely honest, even though I try to eat clean and healthy, uh, I mean, I love my bag of chips. Uh, I love my little Mexican pork grinds. I know that's disgusting for some, but they're tasty. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just eat a typical American slash Texas diet, although I try to burn that off as much as possible. But I don't want to give off any airs that somehow I'm in the diet elite because that is definitely not the case. Uh, my main food source is caffeine uh, and at times um, some protein chips. Not the best. I get it. But again, just listen to what I say and not what I do. Is that how it goes or something like that? Anyway, let's go over some types of vegetarianism first, because this is why the data regarding this can get kind of confusing, because uh, vegetarianism isn't just one group. There are different types. And that's why some of the studies show different results, because they don't really stratify the type of vegetarian that the participant actually is. There are actually a about five different kinds of vegetarian diets. The first is semi-vegetarian, which means that they only exclude red meat. 
The other type of vegetarianism is lacto-vegetarian. This is the type that allows the dairy, but no eggs, fish, or meat. So dairy only, hence the lacto in lacto-vegetarian. Then you have lacto-ovo type of vegetarianism. And this is the type that eats dairy, but also includes eggs, but no fish and no meat. The fourth type of vegetarian diet is lacto-ovo-pesco-vegetarian. Pesco as in pescado, that's fish. So these allow dairy, fish, and eggs in their vegetarian diet. The last kind is the strictest type, which is the focus of this episode, which is, of course is vegan. These only eat foods derived from plant sources. So there's no meat and no animal products. And that includes any animal byproducts. All right. So those are the five different types. Semi-vegetarian, lacto-vegetarian, lacto-ovo, lacto-ovo-pesco, and then strict vegetarian, which is vegan. So you see how you have to be careful how you interpret some of the data because you have to look specifically to what kind of vegetarian diet the participants actually were taking. And sometimes that's hard to control, especially on surveys, because patients will typically put or participants will put, yep, they'll check the little vegetarian box. But are they strict vegetarian? Are they vegan or not? And that's what com complicates some of the data. Of course, because some micronutrients are only found in true dairy or animal products, Products, vegan diets can have some potential micronutrient deficiencies, namely things like obviously protein. If they're not getting enough protein stores, they can be low in iron, vitamin D, calcium, iodine, omega-3 fatty acids, and vitamin B12. Those are the micronutrients that are most at risk here. So let's do those again. Protein, iron, vitamin D, calcium, iodide, omega-3, and vitamin B12. A case in point of just how the data really is kind of all over the place on this. I want to show you the recommendations or at least data summaries from two organizations. All right. Now, let me show you the first one, which goes back to 2016 from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. All right. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. You can find that online. Well, according to this organization, well-planned vegan, lacto-vegetarian, and lacto-ovo-vegetarian diets were appropriate for all stages of life, including pregnancy and lactation. However, if you take a look at the German Nutritional Society, yes, I get it, it's not the American, but I'm just showing that the kind of the changes in their in their interpretations here. The German Nutrition Study has issued their own statement regarding this kind of diet control, and they state, quote, with a pure plant-based diet, it's difficult or impossible to attain an adequate supply of some nutrients during pregnancy. The most critical nutrient at risk is vitamin B12. So the German Nutrition Society does not recommend a vegan diet for pregnant women or those who are lactating. Again, see two very different historical statements on how the vegan diet can affect pregnancy. But again, it's hard to control this because, as we have already mentioned, a vegan or vegetarian diet may mean something else to one individual as it does to another. So again, I know that these weren't necessarily the American stance. That was the German Nutritional Society. But I just wanted to show you there as a point of contrast from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, how two different organizations can look at the matter 
and get to two very different conclusions. All right, fine. Let's stick with something that's not so conflicting or controversial, which is the benefits of this kind of diet. Because without fail, uh, without question, uh, there is some health benefits to the vegetarian lifestyle, right? No one's going to deny that. I mean, it's cleaner living. It's better for your GI microflora, uh, uh, your microbiota. We know that. There's less chance of developing hypertension, less chance of developing diabetes. Uh, and of course, there seems to be uh, a less inflammatory state uh, to the body as an organism, all right? Now, we've come a long way in learning that the foods that we eat really do impact our health because certain foods are definitely pro-inflammatory. Now, let me give a disclosure again. Look, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a nutritionist. My son is actually studying nutrition. I'm learning a lot from him. Uh, he's, a, he's in college at a university of Texas, my own alma mater, should I say, uh, which is ironic because now I work at Texas A&M which is the competitor. But nonetheless, uh, what the heck was I saying? Oh, about the pro-inflammatory foods. Sorry. They'll probably edit that out anyway. Anyway, pro-inflammatory foods, uh, that is a thing. And I hate to say that because I, I love meat. I really do. Uh, but it's probably not good for you. There is something called the Dietary Inflammatory Index, the DII, that labels a kind of inflammation uh, that foods that we eat uh, can result uh, in the body. Let me give you an example. Certain foods are pro-inflammatory that can affect things like eczema. There's an eczema diet. And look, I didn't train with this. This wasn't part of my standard MD education. And I was like, that's just so hokey. I mean, you can eat whatever you want to. You'll be fine. Uh, and eczema is an is a autoimmune issue. Uh, has to do with cytokines and uh, you know antibody stimulation. It has nothing to do with your diet. Boy, I was wrong. It, it definitely does. A lot of chronic health conditions are linked to diet. And I'm going to give you a very, very eye-opening um, publication. We're going to review this coming up next. That was just published in JAMA Open Network about how combining inflammatory food sources with psychosocial stress is really putting our offspring, putting our future children uh, at risk because it affects fetuses in the womb. Let me say that again. Pro-inflammatory foods mixed with high social uh, and economic stressors. Uh, I mean, who doesn't have that, right? But specifically hooking those things together, we now know programs the child in utero for future metabolic disturbances uh, like obesity and diabetes uh, and even mood disorders. This is crazy. But I'm going to review that study coming up here in just a minute. But let me show you just a quick list of which foods have a high DII, a dietary inflammatory index. And I hate to read this because, my goodness, any given week, I'm eating at least 75% of these. Inflammatory foods include things like red meat or processed meats, including bacon, hot dogs, lunch meats, and cured meats. Cured meats, oh, those are so good, but they're super inflammatory. Other inflammatory foods include refined grains like white bread or white rice. So if you're going to eat bread, it's okay to eat bread, but they should be whole grain and not refined. Certain snack foods like chips and cookies and crackers and pastries are also inflammatory. Sodas and other sweetened drinks have a high DII. And of course, sorry, fried foods are incredibly inflammatory. Ugh, boy, I really hated reading that list because they're so good. 
But there is data linking foods high in inflammatory index, especially during pregnancy, when matched with high psychosocial stresses that can have negative impacts. Now we know they have negative impacts on child development. So let's cover that next. Now, this next section is not about the vegan diet. It's actually just the opposite. But I'm making the case for, uh, with proper counseling and nutritional advice, how a vegan diet can be totally okay. All right, There is one factor that we need to discuss, uh, which has to do with newborn birth weights. But again, this next section has to do with an article that just came out in JAMA Open Network uh, from January 2023. And it has nothing to do with the vegan diet, but it has everything to do with the diet that's exactly the opposite of that. The title of this original investigation out of pediatrics is, quote, the role of prenatal psychosocial stress in the associations of a pro-inflammatory diet in pregnancy with child adiposity and growth trajectories. Okay, that's a lot of fancy terms. Short of it is, we took a look at the diet that pregnant women ate, matched them to the type of stress that they were having, and then we figured out, we took a look at child uh, adiposity and growth trajectories, all right, the amount of fat that they accumulated from birth to early childhood. The objective of the study, as stated by the authors, was, quote, to investigate whether the association of the dietary inflammatory index with offspring adiposity differed by prenatal stress levels and whether these associations change with age. So, again, just matching stress levels with food intake to figure out if this contributed to childhood obesity or not. So that's, there's a lot of other factors, but for the sake of the podcast, that's basically the gist of this. I'm so thankful that we get this information because what do people do when they feel low, right? They feel depressed or what's one of the things that they do to cope? Uh, They eat. I mean, that's why we call it comfort food, right? I mean, I'm guilty of that too. I mean, I'm quick to go and grab the the ice cream or the chocolate to try to get those endorphins. I I get that. Um, But stress eating is, is pretty bad for us. Short of it is, as you would guess, Uh, Let's just beat it to the punch there. High stress states and pro-inflammatory foods during pregnancy led to increased rates of early childhood obesity. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute. Does it really? I mean, there's a lot of factors that lead to childhood obesity, like what the kid eats. And, and that's right. That That's correct. But when you stratify for that, when you link it back to in utero exposures, we know that there's some metabolic imprinting here. These are epigenetic changes. So this study, they did observe that higher prenatal dietary inflammatory scores were associated with greater overall and central obesity in both early adolescence as well as faster adiposity gains from childhood all the way to adolescence. So it's not just what they're eating and their energy expenditure during those years. This actually starts in utero. You can trace this all the way back to their in utero environment. The whole world of epigenetic influences is so crazy. I mean, we really can imprint children in utero uh, for adverse outcomes later in life. Uh, We did our TEDx talk on Memento Mori in, what year was that, 2020? Uh, And even in there, we talked about how maternal mood, specifically depression and anxiety, can lead to negative imprinting in and of itself. So you've got the mood influences influencing in a negative way the developing fetus uh, with neurochemical changes and physical, actually physically changing the brain structure. And then when you match that uh, to diet, which is another independent variable, those 
two things are additive to imprint on the child, to metabolically imprint on that child, uh, a future that could be potentially uh, negative in terms of health outcomes. Okay, fine. I think we've solidified that, that you are what you eat and pro-inflammatory foods are not good for you, whether you're male, female, pregnant or not. Uh, it is good idea to eat, just eat healthy. I get that. But remember, nothing is free, right? There's always a trade-off. So if you're vegan, you could put yourself at risk for protein deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency, iodine, uh, and iron stores. Those are the main things that you could be uh, at risk of not having enough of. And all of those requirements increase in pregnancy. So now let's do our focus of this episode, which is a vegan OB patient, and take a look at some of the data that's been out here in print recently uh, so that we can better counsel our patients. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the Journal of Perinatology from September of 2020, Avnon et al. took a look at the impact of a vegan diet on pregnancy outcomes. This was a prospective observational study involving women with singleton pregnancies who maintained the same diet prior to and throughout the current pregnancy. Stratification was then performed according to the diet type. This was classified as either vegans, lacto-ovo-vegetarians, fish eaters, or omnivores. Omnivore. I love that. I'm an omnivore. Sounds like we're some kind of like a prehistoric uh, dinosaur tribe or something. Omnivore. Anyway, I digress. Uh, please edit all this out, man. This wasn't a huge end, but it was still respectable. Overall, 273 women were enrolled, and of them, 112 of the 273 were omnivores. 37 were fish-eating, 64 were lacto-ovo-vegetarians, and 60 were vegan. The vegan diet was significantly associated with an increased risk of small for gestational age newborns compared only to the omnivore diet. The significance of preterm birth was similar in all groups. Vegans had lower birth weights compared to lacto-ovo-vegetarians, but not to fish-eaters. Vegans also had a lower mean gestational weight gain compared only to the omnivores. So the conclusion was, was that the vegan diet was associated with an increased risk for small for gestational age newborns and had lower birth weights. But there was actually no effect on the incidence of preeclampsia or gestational diabetes. That actually is different than other publications because others have found that a vegan diet was directly related to a reduced risk of hypertensive disorders and gestational diabetes. So to be very clear, no one has ever shown that a vegan diet increases the risk of those two pregnancy comorbidities. So according to the conglomerate data, it either reduces the risk slightly or has no effect at all. So in other words, it cannot hurt. So while some studies have shown a 
a reduction in preeclampsia and gestational diabetes with a vegan diet. Not all of them have. And the reason is, is that one of the factors that you have to account for are the patient's BMI. So some studies have shown in patients who have normal BMI and are vegetarian slash vegan, they do have that reduced risk of those two comorbidities. But if their BMI is above average, in other words, if they're overweight or obese, because uh, you can be obese, vegan, yes, you can. Uh, it's just not that common, but you can. Uh, if you have a higher BMI, then that preventative effect of being vegan may be lost. So you don't have that reduction in risk of preeclampsia or GDM. So there is a BMI factor there. But the good news is, is that being vegan does not seem to increase the risk of being hypertensive or developing GDM. And there does not seem to be a risk, not just in this publication, but in others as well, does not seem to be a risk in preterm birth. So those are three issues that thankfully are in the clear. Now, we need to clarify something here regarding being born SGA because there's two different types of SGA, all right? So there's SGA because they're constitutionally small, and then there's SGA because they're pathologically small, in other words, like growth restriction. We did that in a previous episode. This was just our last episode where we talked about uh, FGR diagnoses, right, with abdominal circumference. And so there's pathological small babies, so FGR can lead to SGA and those again have that stress in utero programming. But you could be SGA and just be constitutionally small or be SGA because of poor uh, maternal weight gain, but still with adequate nutrition. All right. So poor maternal weight gain in pregnancy is either due to malnutrition or good nutrition that's just low caloric intake. Those are two very different things. So if you're ever asked what are the risks with an SGA child, you can say, well, in general, it's these outcomes. However, you have to subclassify if that SGA is because of a fetal growth abnormality that's pathologically driven, like uteroplacental insufficiency or FGR, or is it simply because of a low maternal weight gain with otherwise adequate nutrition, like with a vegan diet? Isn't that interesting? You see how complex this is? But this is what we should be as doctors and as scientists and as healthcare providers. Don't just memorize an answer, all SGA babies are bad. That's not necessarily the case. <laughs> SGA could be just because you're constantly constitutionally small, uh, and you're uh, smaller than the average population, but there's technically nothing at risk for that child. And that's what some of the data is pointing here, because being vegan does lead to less maternal weight gain. That's proven. We know that. I mean, they have uh, maybe a little uh, calorically restricted um, but compared to an omnivore, which can lead to then lower or smaller uh, estimated fetal weights, but they're not pathologically affected. This came out in the International Journal of Epidemiology in February 2021. The title of this publication is Vegetarian Diets During Pregnancy and Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes. I know it's vegetarian diet. It's in general, not just vegan. But again, it makes the point here that you have to take a look at the kind of vegetarian diet that the patient is using and that it does not seem to be linked to any real negative health outcomes for the child. In this publication, the authors use data from the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development Fetal Growth Studies for singletons. This was a prospective multi-site cohort of over 1,900 low-risk pregnant women of four races or ethnicities in the U.S. And this spanned a time interval from 2009 to 2013. 
Now, vegetarianism was self-reported and was also defined based on dietary patterns measured using a self-administered first-trimester food frequency questionnaire that continued all throughout the pregnancy. And again, they took into account the different kinds of vegetarianism that included lacto-ovo-vegetarianism, pesco-vegetarian, semi, and again, those non-vegetarians as well. In this cohort, 99 women of the entire group, which was 6%, reported themselves as vegetarian. Vegetarian diets during pregnancy were associated with constitutionally smaller neonatal size, potentially via the mother's reduced maternal weight gain. But notably, vegetarianism was not associated with small for gestational age-related morbidities or any other adverse maternal outcomes. So do you all see that? So again, just being born small, a child that's SGA, isn't necessarily bad. You have to figure out why that is. So, oh, your child's a little lower in weight. It maps out to being SGA, less than the 10th percentile for a population norm. Then you ask, hey, tell me about your diet and pregnancy. Oh, I'm a strict vegan. Otherwise healthy, no high blood pressure, no diabetes, no drug use. Um, Okay, well, then you have likely constitutionally small child, which doesn't necessarily mean that there's an increase in neonatal morbidity. So in general, most of the data for vegan diets seem to show either a slight to modest reduction in the rate of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and gestational diabetes, which may be modified uh, based on BMI levels with no negative impact on preterm labor. And there does seem to be this increased rate of small for gestational age, but it's not a pathologic result. And that also can be modified based on maternal weight gain. So in short, if vegan diet tends to be okay, but vegan OB patients should be counseled that they do need some specific supplementation with some key micronutrients. So let's cover that as we wrap up this episode coming up next. All right, in general, whether you're vegan or not, most of us could use a little extra vitamin D. I mean, we're just not out in the sun like we really should be. We're all stuck on a computer inside somewhere. And so vitamin D deficiency is a real thing. During pregnancy, the nutritional value considerations are that a serum 25-OH vitamin D level should be above 75 nanomoles per liter, all right, or 30 milligrams per ml, but most use uh, nanomoles per liter. So I do recommend in a pregnant uh, vegan patient or during preconception counseling, at least checking these preconceptually to see if they need extra supplementation. And that's just not me. I mean, that is extra opinion. Uh, the American Pregnancy Association feels that way, American Dietary Association. It's just good to know where a vegan is pre-pregnancy uh, to see what needs to be supplemented. Also, vitamin B12 is a big deal. Serum totals should be considered optimal when they're above either 350 or 360 uh, picomoles per liter, depends on who you read. So vitamin B12, remember 350 or 360. Another one, of course, is calcium. All pregnant women should have additional calcium because their typical requirement is around 1,200 to 15 milligrams per day. So especially those who don't get any dairy, it's very important that they take, once again, up to 1,200 to 1,500 milligrams per day. Protein is a big deal because demands during pregnancy increase during the second and third trimesters. Protein demands may not be able to be met with a strict vegan diet, so it's important that they get that from plant or grains as needed. 
the increase in protein demands during pregnancy goes up to 70 grams per day. All right, so 70 grams per day is typically what's required during pregnancy compared to typically around 50 grams per day for non-pregnant women. And this is mainly an issue in the second and third trimesters. So remember that this can be done if they're straight vegan by uh, lentils or soy milk. Something that contains this amount of protein is very, very important daily. It's also recommended during pregnancy that vegans use the appropriate amount of DHA because omega-3s can be low since they're not eating fish, all right? So DHA, anywhere from 100 to 200 milligrams per day uh, is a recommendation during pregnancy. And the last micronutrient that may need supplementation is iodine. In pregnancy, the typical recommendation is anywhere from 220 micrograms to 290 micrograms per day of supplemental iodine because they may not be getting that from dietary sources alone. Before we wrap up this episode, a quick word about choline. We did a episode um, not long ago, maybe two months ago or so, three months ago, uh, on choline supplementation during pregnancy. That's something that always gets left out. Everybody knows about folic acid, and that's an important one for sure. Um, but again, the type of folate also matters. You can listen to that episode. But choline is super important during pregnancy. Uh, so is iodine and B12. So these are things to take into account, hopefully during preconception. But if they come in pregnant and they're vegan, uh, it's a good idea to measure these just to see where they are in their system um, at their baseline level because they may require supplementation. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. There's plenty of data out there about the health benefits of being vegetarian and or vegan. Hey, if you've got the strength to be a vegan, uh, the willpower, fantastic. (laughs) Just make sure that you're getting your important micronutrients that you really need to get, not just for pregnancy, but for overall health. Of course, we know that nutrition has a big effect on our mood status. So make sure that you're getting the appropriate micronutrients, whether you're male, female, pregnant or not. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.